Anybody know what we're talking about tonight? Tennis. You're amazing. You guys, you take cues like nothing. Um, so thanks for coming tonight. It's really a privilege to be here. Uh, I have been wanting to talk about tennis for a while, just to some group, any group. I played a lot of tennis growing up, and um, I titled, right, I'm going to get this thing so I'm not breathing into it all night. I think it's falling off. Alan said I have a small head, and that's the problem. <laughs> I told him there's plenty of brains in that little head of mine, so <laughs> we'll see if we can get this worked out. Um, the title tonight, I'm going to bring this forward. I kind of like to stand down there better. Can, can y'all see me if I stand down there? I'm copying my, yeah, okay. I'm going to do that. I can't get not breathing into this thing. Am I doing this wrong? <laughs> there, I got it. I'm not breathing into it. Okay. Um, no, I don't need to. Thank you, though. Um, so I'm going to just, what I'm going to do is talk to you a little bit about stories tonight, stories that I've kind of learned from my experience playing tennis and give you a story of someone else that was an athlete and um, give you kind of just some three things that I learned playing collegiate tennis that really helped me succeed in that avenue. And then I feel like right now God's trying to take me back to those and say, look, you need to apply those to your life. It wasn't just for that season of your life. It wasn't just for athletics. This is something that you really should be using on a regular basis. So that's what we're going to do. And I got a lot. So uh, I'm going to dive right into it. <laughs> I'm not usually like a note person, so I got a lot of stuff to share. Um, I'd like to go kind of just the beginning and take you through how I got into tennis a little bit. It's going to feel maybe a little bit in-depth at first, but it, there's a point. So when I was young, I started tennis late, uh, 12 years old. I started playing tennis, and that's pretty late. I grew up in Florida, one of the most competitive states in the nation. So um, to start then, you're already behind. They're usually, at, when I was 12, um, Capriotti was turning pro, and some of you know Jennifer Capriotti. She turned pro at 15, so she, three years after I actually learned the game, she went on the professional tour. So that kind of gives you an idea of like when they're trying to push you into the pro avenue. And so um, I was training a lot. We, um, we taught, we, our coach was really into conditioning, and he was really about being physically prepared, and he was very good at teaching strokes, that we had, um, the people that trained there had great strokes. We looked mechanically very, very sound, and he would tell us to practice um, two to three hours on a school day, maybe more, maybe four, and then he would also say on the weekends, he wants us on the court between six and eight hours on the weekend. And then in the summer, we're on the court 68 hours every day, maybe skipping one day, taking one day of rest. So this, I'm just trying to give it set a tone for um, just how much training went into that. So um, what happened for me was that uh, I was really good at that part. I could do the training. Um, I could do the... Uh, the physical conditioning, I had the strokes down. And I started to do fairly well for the length of time I'd been in tennis, but it was, my success was only intermittent. Um, I would do great, I would have moments of glory and moments of disaster. And I could not figure out, and could not pull it together, like what was going on? Why was I not succeeding more consistently? So I succeeded enough in Florida to obtain some offers to scholarships to different colleges, some division one scholarships. 
Um, I picked a school, went off to Texas, and started to play my first year of collegiate tennis. When I got there, um, things were good, and they started to go bad. I started to lose confidence in my capabilities. Uh, my coach started to change my strokes, which I'd had the same strokes, I had the same coach all growing up. So those had been sort of a foundation for me. He started to change that. Things between our team started to crumble. They weren't getting, we weren't getting along. Um, there wasn't a real cohesiveness. So at the end of that year, I was kind of drifting. I kind of felt like maybe I, maybe all that stuff was just for nothing. Um, and I took the break. I took a summer off. And at the, in, in between that break, um, I just kind of reevaluated whether this is what I want to do. I thought about traveling for a while in, um, in Europe or taking some time off and trying to collect myself. But I contacted one of the coaches from another school that had offered me a scholarship, and I said, would you still be willing? I'd like to play for you. So she invited me back. And we got there, and uh, this team had, we had uniforms for practice. And the uniforms had this phrase, this motto printed on the back. And this is what I'm going to kind of use and what I feel like God's kind of teaching me again what we can use in life. It's not just a sports application. So the motto on the back was train your mind, I'm sorry, train your body, prepare your mind, and play with your heart. And that was something that we used. It was plastered on every shirt that we wore um, as a team. And that was something that she ingrained into us. So um, I want to talk to you about a little bit about that. So we're going to start with training your body. Um, in sports, training is essential. To become a great tennis player, you have to practice a lot. In high school, I actually gained that aspect of training um, from my coach. He was really well sought after to teach, so the only time I could be taught by him was from 6 to 7 a.m. before school. So I would be up at 5.15. I'd play for an hour, I'd go home, shower, go to school, come back from usually from four to six at night. So that would be a regular routine. Um, so that was kind of uh, fundamentals. I, I knew how to do that. Um, we also hit a lot of balls. We hit a lot of tennis balls. If you guys, anyone that plays sports or plays music, anybody that does any kind of, basically anything that you're really trying to go to a next level in, we have to start training. We know that physically, but I want to take that deeper. How do we apply that to our faith? How do we apply that to our everyday life, right? I feel like a lot of times in sports, um, we're willing to make the commitment. I know so many people that are doing CrossFit is such a great way to kind of get back in shape and really get your body to where you want it to be, and they're willing to do the training for that. They know that there's a commitment involved, right? There's a certain amount of hours that you have to do to succeed in CrossFit. Well, in life, I feel like we kind of forget that. I feel like we kind of forget that, hey, if we're going um, to really move forward with the Lord in our, in our relationship with him, there's some, there's some training that kind of goes on, right? It doesn't just like happen overnight where I wake up one day and, I, and I'm really good at studying the scriptures or I feel like I really have great communication with the Lord. It's sort of something that we have to train our bodies to settle down. Uh, I don't know if any of you tried to spend some time in prayer. Mike and I used to joke about it in Texas where we feel like there's days when we wake up early because we have little kids and that's the quiet time of our day, quiet in the house. And it was so quiet that you feel like, I'm not, 
getting anywhere. I feel like I'm just hearing crickets. And I would often, like, fall asleep. He would come out. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Sleep on the couch. Oh, just doing the quiet time, you know, trying to seek the Lord. But there's a training that goes on with our body where we have to, um, we have to teach it to, to settle down. We have to teach it to be still. And in this day and age, that can be pretty hard to sit down and be still with little kids like you, Rachel, <laughs> running all over the place. Um, so I, I want to just go back to that training part here. I'm going to give you a couple of verses, and I'm just going to read them out. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. It says, don't you know, and this is not an IV. I don't think they're going to try to put any of this up because I didn't give it to them. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only to receive, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to receive the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do, do it to receive a crown that will fade away. But we, we do it for a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I don't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I will not be disqualified myself. And I just want to kind of make that reference that I'm putting this biblically it does say that we have, to, we have to teach our bodies to do these things. It's not just like it naturally comes for us. The other verse I just found about training, it says, train yourselves to be godly, 1 Timothy 4, 7. And the word that it uses there, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I cheated and used the internet, you know, is gymnazo or gymnazo. I could be wrong. Does anybody speak Greek? Sometimes people do. No? None of y'all? So this means to train with one's full effort, with complete physical emotional force like when working out intensely in a gymnasium to exert intensely like a pro athlete it presumes full discipline necessary to be in quote top working condition this is what he says to be to be godly to seek after the lord this is gained only from constant rigorous training or exercise it also conveys acquiring proficiency through practice regular exercise with gradual resistance it also says this is kind of like being in God's gymnasium, so in training with the Lord. So I just want to say that, yeah, there is a, sometimes we feel like training applies to other parts of our life, but it doesn't necessarily try to our, apply to our spiritual life or our own life on an everyday aspect. So I'm just trying to say, look, training is important. So train your body is number one. Um, let's see. I wrote this down, let's see, yep. So much of this battle is fought for in the quiet, obscure places of the practice court. We cannot enter into the battles of life and think training is unnecessary. We must do the hard work of pursuing God and growing in love and understanding of him. Like any, eff any relationship, there is effort involved. And like practice, we don't always feel like doing it. And that's one thing I think we kind of miss in the church, that like if we don't feel like getting up and spending the time with the Lord, then maybe we just don't need to do it. But we know that so many times, practice, practice does not feel good. Practice for anything doesn't, it's not always fun. There's this great, great quote about athletes. It says, the vision of a champion is someone who is bent over, drenched in sweat, at the point of exhaustion when no one else is watching. And there, today it feels like there's so much about um, letting everybody know what you're doing because there's a lot of social media where you can constantly post your progress on things. But a lot of our progress with the Lord is in those private places. It's really in the, in the secret place with him. 
um, the Bible talks about just getting alone with the Lord. So we really just really need to train our bodies to take that time away and get some time with him. I love seeing all these faces I know. Thanks for being here. That was fun. Okay. Uh, we need habits in place to teach our bodies to be still and hear the Lord, to listen his quiet impartation for our hearts to settle and understand the move of his spirit. Um, David, I was going to go back to example here with David's life, and he wasn't made king overnight, right? I feel like David was put into training. He, I feel like he probably could have been a pretty good athlete, although they kind of use a lot more of his, his battle stories um, are his, his sports. Um, but we know that he was in training as a shepherd, right? He was out on the fields with sheep, not glorious, alone, no one's watching. But he says there, uh, he says right before he goes to, to battle with Goliath, he says, the Lord's delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. Well, to me, that sounds like training. That sounds like a, uh, you're getting ready to defeat something bigger, and I've given you some successes along the way so that you can walk in with confidence. It's not, it's not something that um, I'm asking you to go in cold. This is, a this is from 1 Samuel 17. And see if you can pick out what I'm going after here. It says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He's about to go fight Goliath. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And what I'm trying to get after there is that David had been training with tools that the Lord had given him for years. And so, and sometimes we do that. We've been training in a way for years. The Lord's been teaching us something, right? And all of a sudden, something like, oh, you'll definitely need this to move forward. You're going to need this sword. You're going to need my helmet. But he put those on. He's, I haven't been training with this. This isn't what God's been teaching me. He hasn't been, I haven't been training with a sword and a helmet and these big, heavy things. I'm not used to them. And I just want to show that that A, David trained, and then he used the tools that he'd been training with to go forward and become a giant slayer. Okay, the last thing I feel like I'm going to hit on, and then I'm going to settle on the next topic for just a few minutes. The last thing about training is training to resist temptation, and I feel like that's something that we don't necessarily like to talk about, but our minds are um, strong, and our bodies, can, we can develop a, a response, a trained response, like in sports. So I know that, so in, in tennis, if someone's going to hit me a serve and if I'm standing on the court and I'm waiting and they have a great serve, I'm not standing there going, I wonder what they're going to do, right? I'm not standing there. What happens is I'm waiting and the serve comes at 90, 95 miles an hour. There isn't, there isn't a thought necessarily that goes through your head at that point. There's nothing you can do at 95 miles an hour to make a great decision then. Right? The body's been trained to respond in a specific manner. If it comes to my forehand, the body actually automatically does what it needs to do to do it. And what Mike and I were talking about, training your body, he had a great story, but I didn't get in touch. Jimmy Graham, who was a Navy SEAL, had a great story about trained response. But what they teach you in tennis is if you're waiting for the serve, right, and I'm down here and your, your feet are down, your legs are apart, you're down low, you're watching for the ball, they 
<clears throat> the best thing you can do when someone's serving hard is to step forward into their serve. You don't ever go backwards. You don't ever go to the side when you're trying to return a tennis ball. It's the worst possible response you can do. But that's a trained response. Your natural reaction is to move back and try to give yourself time, right? But they tell you don't do it. You gotta lean forward on the balls of your feet and you're going after what's coming at you. And so I think that's important that we, there's trained responses when, when attack is coming at our, our life, at our faith, we have to have those trained responses. We can't go, oh my gosh, oh, there's, there's, a, there's pornography coming across my computer. What do I do now? I don't know what to do. We have to have a trained response. We have to decide ahead of time, what am I gonna do when this happens, right? I mean, this is just, this is just rote memory. We should have a, have things that we do that, that help us overcome these little things. They really shouldn't be major battles at that point. Does that make sense? Am I making sense to you guys? Okay, so I feel like um, that we need, we, as a church, not our church overall, but overall church, that we don't necessarily look at life like that. Like, oh yeah, I should have kind of some of these, these things in place, but we, it would be helpful to us, right? All right, thank you. <laughs> I have a verse to go along with this, Hebrews 5.14. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So just talking about training that, we'll, that we're ready and we know the difference right away. There's no question whether this is the right or the wrong way to go or right or wrong decision. Okay, it's vitally important that we get along with, alone with God. That is our training ground. That is our practice court. And I add at the end, the great thing about it, too, is that we're not alone. We know that we have the Holy Spirit with us. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted in Hebrews 2.18. So you're not alone. You don't have to do all this alone. But now I want to go into uh, the second part of that motto. So train your body is prepare your mind. And I, this is one of those things that I feel like maybe, I don't know, I feel like the church has kind of steered away from this. Maybe the mystical side of like, uh, has trying to take away some of the strength of what it means to have our mind fixed and focused and trained. Um, preparing our mind for tennis means, means uh, a lot. Tennis is a really mental sport. You're playing alone and you're playing against someone else. One of the things, and I, the reason I brought this up is I want to illustrate something. There's a lot of mind games in tennis, and I feel like there's a lot of mind games that the enemy uses against us. So I want to tell you some of the mind games that we see in tennis uh, that maybe you can affiliate those with the mind games of your life that the enemy tries to use on you. So in tennis, it all, the match begins as soon as you walk on the court. So we're taught as young kids in tennis, you don't walk out with your racket like this. I don't walk around and have my bag dragging behind me. If I have a racket in my hand, I have my racket out and I have it up. I have it in my left hand. I'm a right-handed player, but my right hand needs to be relaxed, okay? And this is the sign that I'm in charge of my racket and I'm in charge of the situation. If I'm gonna go up to, um, to the net, I walk up to the net and I walk up like this. I don't walk up like this and, do you think that ball was out? I go, no, the ball was in and you were wrong. And there's all these mental games because it's a control, like who has the authority in this situation, okay? So when you're watching tennis, um, there's so much about being control of your mind. And we know 
if any of y'all know, know tennis players, there's plenty of them that lose their temper. Andy Murray is the one that we all love sometimes or love to hate. Um, the French Open just finished this past weekend. I didn't get to watch any of it, but I've heard some highlights and some stories. But um, Andy Murray did not win the French Open. He was in the finals. But he's notorious for throwing rackets, and he's notorious for having tantrums. And the disadvantage of that is that your body and your emotions are now controlling your mind. You're no longer in control of who you are in the situation on the court. And that's one of the first things te they teach you in tennis, is it's not necessarily your strokes and your conditioning, but it's your mind. I wasn't taught that as a, at a young age. I want to read you a quick story. Well, it's not exactly quick, but I think you'll really like it. This is another athlete, and this has to do with uh, the strength of your mind and using it to your advantage. <sighs> okay. Michael Phelps began swimming when he was seven years old to burn off energy that was driving his mom and his teacher crazy. When a local swimming coach named Bob Bowman saw Phelps' long torso, his hands and relatively, his big hands and his relatively short legs, which offered less drag, he knew Phelps could become a champion. But Phelps was emotional. He had trouble calming down before races. His parents were divorcing, and he had problems coping with stress. Bowman began teaching Phelps how to relax his muscles and release tension before he fell asleep at night. Bowman believed the key to victory was creating the right routine, but many Olympics would have those. What Bowman could give Phelps, however, what would set him apart from other competitors were habits that would make him in the strongest mental swimmer in the pool. He didn't need to control every aspect of Phelps' life. All he needed to do was target a few specific habits that had nothing to do with swimming and everything to do with creating the right mindset. He designed a series of behaviors that Phelps could use to become calm and focused before each race, to find those tiny advantages that, in a sport where victory can come in milliseconds, would make all the difference. So he goes into mental strength. When Phelps was a teenager, for instance, at the end of each practice, Bowman would tell him, go home and watch, quote, the videotape. Watch it before you go to sleep and when you wake up. The videotape wasn't real. Rather, it was a mental visu visualization of the perfect race. Each night before falling asleep and each morning after waking up, Phelps would imagine himself off the blocks and in slow motion, swimming flawlessly, he would imagine the wake behind his body, the water dripping off his lips when his mouth cleared the surface, and what it would feel like to rip off his cap at the end of the race. He would lie in bed with his eyes shut and watch the entire competition, the smallest details, again and again, until he knew each one by second. I mean, by heart, sorry. During practices, when Bowman ordered Phelps to swim the race at race speed, he would shout, put in the videotape and Phelps would push himself as hard as he could. He had done this so many times in his heart, in his head now, that it felt rote. And it worked. He got faster and faster. Once Bowman established a few core routines in Phelps's life, all the other habits, his diet, his practice schedule, the stretching and sleep routines, they seemed to fall into place on their own. At the core of why those habits were so effective, why they acted as keystone habits was something known within academic literature as small wins. A huge body of research has shown that small wins have enormous power 
an influence disproportionate to the accomplishments of the victory itself. Small wins, this is a quote, small wins are steady application of a small advantage. One Cornell University professor wrote that in 1984. Once a small win has been accomplished, forces are set in motion that favor another small win. Small wins fuel transformative changes by leveraging the tiny advantages into patterns that convince people in their mind that bigger achievements are within reach. So what he's trying to say that those small things, as we take them as wins, they create the ability for us to perceive that we can overcome a greater challenge than we think possible. So I'm going to keep going. So this is when habits take over. This is precisely what happened with Michael Phelps. When Bob Bowman started working with Phelps and his mom on the habit of visualization relaxing, neither Bowman nor Phelps had any idea what they were doing. We'd experiment, we'd try things until we found what worked, Bowman told me. Eventually, we figured it out the best, we figured out it was best to concentrate on these tiny moments of success and build them into bigger mental triggers. We worked them into a routine. There's a series of things we do before every race that are designed to give Michael a sense of building victory. If you were to ask Michael what's going on his head before competition, he would say he's not really thinking about anything. He's just following the program. But that's not right. It's more like his habits have taken over. When the race arrives, he's more than halfway through his plan, and he's been victor victorious at every single step. All the stretches went like he planned. The warm-up laps were just as he visualized. His headphones are playing exactly what he expected. The actual race is just another step in a pattern that started earlier that day and has been nothing but victories. Winning is just a natural extension. I felt like that was just so good. I think that it's really important that um, I thought, Lord, how do I convert that into like the faith aspect, right? How do we pull that into our everyday life? And he said, I felt like he told me, or at least I felt it in my heart. He said, what does the enemy do? If you're going to take that and turn it topsy-turvy and say, in the reverse, what does the enemy do? Does, are there little things? They may not even be true, but that we take on and we can hear them as a defeat. The little things, they say, oh, you forgot to feed the cat again. Oh, you screamed at your children again. Oh, my gosh. You're a failure. And they're building, right? They're building these things that we feel like we can focus on the negative things in our life, and they can build and start to tell us a lie that we can latch on to. But I love this. Because what this does is we can take, it teaches us that our minds can take the small victories. We can take the small things in life. We can wake up early with the Lord and start that routine early. We can overcome things before they cross our path, right? So I was thinking, well, what would that look like in my life? Because I'm trying to learn this myself. And I said, well, I can be pretty sure that my kids are going to argue today. So, <laughs> what? You don't think so? And so... I, I can be ready for that. How am I going to respond? I can kind of choose. Okay, I'm going to be calm. I'm not going to yell. I'm going to try to just sit down, get on their level and talk to them. But we can start teaching our mind, and the Lord can show us things, how good he is to show us things before they come across our path that day, right? But those are small victories that can lead to bigger victories, and we can start to continue to move forward with greater momentum in our walk with the Lord. And I think that's so key. I feel like sometimes we get stuck 
Sometimes we don't know what to do with ourselves. We don't know how to go forward. We keep hitting the same wall over and over. Don't they call that insanity when you keep doing the same thing with the same response or the same result over and over? Uh, so I felt like that was really good. So I'm going to bring in some verses just so that you can show that I can show you that, yes, your mind and, and um, taking captive every thought is in the Bible. This is true. Um, let's see. James 4, 7. Resist the devil, devil and he will free, flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. And I feel like, so we know the devil's not like right in front of us. I'm not like resisting him physically, right? But the, most of that's going to be in our mind. So we're resisting the devil through our thoughts predominantly, right? And the things that he comes at us with, mainly in our brain. Set your thing heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And that helps us keep in perspective, I feel like, when we do that, if I do that, and say, okay, how important is this in the grand scheme of things? We all hear that, that kind of that phrase. In the big scheme of life, this really doesn't matter. But more accurately, really, when we think of heaven versus earth and all that we have waiting in store for us, is this really such a big deal? And it kind of balances us out in our mind. Our emotions can calm down. We can take control um, of what our physical response is to things. Um, I love how Bill Johnson always says, Jesus is perfect theology, and it's so true. But we can look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? He would get alone with the Father, right? He would often, I feel like probably almost every day, get alone with the Father. And the scripture says he only saw what he, he only did what he saw his Father doing, and he only said what he heard his Father saying. And he, he's not physically alone with the Father. He, he is in prayer. He is getting, I feel like, probably pictures. And, and he's hearing things from his, in his heart that he's capturing and going to take those into his life in that day. And so his mind is being focused and fixed on what the Father has. And we can do the same thing, right? So we see the advantage of doing these things. We see the advantage of putting that to work is it builds victories, even small victories, that gain momentum. Okay, let's see. Oh. So did you all pick up on the part in, in the Michael Phelps story? He says, he says, put in the videotape and watch it before you go to bed and watch it when you wake up in the morning. Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. And when you lie down and when you wake up. It's so good and it's so true. When we go to sleep, the Lord can speak to us even as we rest. David says, I think about you through the watches of the night. So I feel like the Lord can do so many things. We just turn our minds to him even as we lay down, even as we wake up in the morning. I love that. Um, know your game plan, your strengths, and who your opponent is. So we know that some of our strengths are putting on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes, Ephesians 6. Um, here's talking about 2 Corinthians 10. We demolish arguments and every pretension that takes it, sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. And so there again is talking about uh, using our mind to, to our advantage and not just letting it run free. Um, 
Hmm. One of the things uh, I kind of wanted to, to hit on is, is that idea of emotions. Um, I wrote down, don't let your emotions and your circumstances control you. And I wanted to share a little bit more about my personal story. So one of the things I talked about was that I was well-conditioned. I had trained a lot. Um, I had great strokes. Mechanically speaking, uh, everything was very sound about my game. But the thing that this coach in, in my junior tennis days, which means before you go to college, um, there, was, there was no conversation about what went through your head when you played a match. And that was one aspect that, that was essential for me. That was one thing that kept my game from going forward on a consistent basis. I could string together a few wins, I could win a tournament here and there, but I could not consistently push past a certain level. When I got to school, um, the, the second college I went to, this coach was very focused on what, what goes through your mind when you're playing a tennis match. Well, what would normally go through my mind in junior tennis, would I be sitting there? And sometimes you're playing someone that's, that's not really that great. I mean, we get all levels. And so you might be winning, right? And you're supposed to beat this person really soundly. They can barely get the serve over the net. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, my mind starts to wander. You know, I'm supposed to be beating this person 6-0. And I'm thinking like, huh, I wonder if mom and dad are going to be windsurfing this afternoon. You know? Like, and my mind would just start going. And then I'd find myself in really crucial moments. I'd be in really tight spots. I'd be about to beat someone really good. And I, you know, I'm, I'm up. I'm about to go up in this set. It's 5-4. I could be winning this game and take this set, which would be a big momentum shift, a big mental shift in the game of tennis if you take a set like that, especially against someone you're not supposed to beat. Well, I'd start thinking, I wonder why I've put so much work and time into tennis. I mean, maybe God wants me to do something else with my life, you know, and those aren't bad thoughts. That's just bad timing. Why am I thinking about what God wants me to do with my life when I'm about to beat someone that I'm not supposed to beat, right? But I didn't know how to control what was going through my mind. I didn't know how to teach my mind to focus on the task at hand. And so many times I feel like that's what happens in life. Our distractions and the things that hang us up aren't necessarily huge temptations or major sins, they can be simple distractions, right? I mean, it, it can be as simple as your, an app on your phone that you just love to check out. I mean, Facebook's a big one for us girls. I don't know about guys. Or, um, I don't know, when <laughs> before smartphones came out, we had the Blackberry. And the Blackberries had, um, well, they had the card games you could play. And, oh, man, we thought those were great. Like, you could play, like, Texas Hold'em or something on there, you know, and that was, like, big deal. But it's simple things that can be a distraction. So we really need to learn this aspect of training our minds. How do we train our mind to focus on the task at hand, at what we're really supposed to be accomplishing for today, for the moment? I mean, tennis um, can be broken down I, I struggled with the Phelps analogy because it, it's an instantaneous thing. It, it lasts for two minutes. For me, you're on the court for two to three, maybe four hours if it's a long match. And your brain has to be focused the whole time. You can't let your brain get off, uh, off the match or, or you, could, you can lose the match very, very easily. We see it really often, especially in, um, it's really easy to observe in professional tennis. We call it choking. There's a technical term when someone's up and they're supposed to be beating and they have 
six match points, and they've been winning easily, and they all blow right past him. They can't get the ball over the net. Their legs freeze up, and they can't run, like, and they've been gliding across the court like it's nothing. Um, where was I going with that? <laughs> so anyway, I think what I didn't realize and, uh, is that we, the power of what your mind can do, what your, the control that your mind can have over your emotions. And sometimes um, I feel like the church has sort of given that up, like the visualization or that idea that we can, can think things through and really use that to our advantage has been kind of let go. But that's not the case what the Bible says. The Bible does say that we do need to train our, train our minds. Let's keep going. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. I'm going to finish what I was going to say. In tennis, the only thing I can be thinking about if I'm about to win a match, the only thing I can be thinking about is not, oh, my ranking's going to go up, or I'm gonna, I might win, I'll play this person next, or I'm going to go get pizza after I'm finished with this match. You know, and that would be normal things that would go through my mind. You have to think. The ball is going to come to me. It's going to come. If it comes to my forehand, I'm going to hit a forehand cross court at this angle. If, if they're going to hit to my backhand, she can't handle a low slice backhand. So I'm going to hit slice low to her, her backhand side. And that's all I'm thinking. And I have to train my brain to only focus on that one shot. I cannot get ahead of my game. And I feel like that's true in life, that sometimes we try to get going so fast forward that we get lost of what we're actually trying to accomplish right now. So the point was, that could, to bring our thoughts and bring our mind under control. Okay. All right. Second um, Corinthians 10. We do not wage war as, those, as the world does, but we do wage war. We fight with weapons that are not of this world, weapons that have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every pretension and argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. <sighs> All right. We're going to kind of, last point is play with your heart. Um, in sports, I mean, you hear it all the time. you got to be all in. You can't, you leave it all on the court. You give your full heart. You play with your heart. Um, I gave everything I had, that kind of thing. And that's normal. That's expected. Uh, when we see athletes, we expect them to, I mean, it's fine if they collapse on the court because we expect them to goof everything, right? But I don't know if that's necessarily, um, that's not necessarily true in life. I want to talk about um, the difference for me when I, when I joined this college team. Tennis is an individual sport. All through juniors, you can't have a coach in the court. You can't be coached at all. It's completely illegal to have anyone talk to you during a match. You're on your own. When I got to college, college tennis is a team sport. And you can have someone coaching you on the side. Um, and you're playing for a collective score. It's not just whether you win or lose. Um, once that came along for me, once I just realized, okay, I'm part of a team. I'm part of a bigger body, as we say in the church. I decided, for me, I could say, I can give everything I have to that. I would always question, why am I giving so much of my time to win for me? I'm going sort of after that, that prize that won't last, a little trophy or a ranking or whatever it might be. But as I, as I came into the team setting, 
I could play with everything I had because I felt like it was a bigger cause than just myself. I'm playing for more, we're playing to win for more than just me. It was for the whole body, it was for the team. And so I think that's a, an important thing that when we are in the church that sometimes we, we might feel alone, but one of the biggest things we can say is that we're, we're fighting together, you're not alone. That we're playing, we wanna be all in for the Lord, but we're playing it together. Um, Jesus stood on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and called out, follow me. And he asked the apostles that they leave everything they had, their family, their business, their friends, to follow him. It was an all or nothing decision. Following Jesus will cost you something, but the victory will far outweigh the cost. Um, Mike and I were talking a little bit about this. And when we decide to follow the Lord, um, it doesn't mean like we stop working our job, that we walk away from our kids. I don't feel like that's necessarily the situation. We can look at stories in the Bible like David. I like to use Esther maybe just because I'm a girl. I don't know. But I look at those stories, and at the point when they had to be all in, when Esther said, they said, you know, if you go into the king, you could die. And she says, if I die, I die. And if I, if I live, I live. There was, her choice of being all in was not made at that point that she said, if, whether I die, I die. She had decided to go all in long before that. So it's not a matter of, um, and David, when he went up to fight Goliath, knowing that really the odds were stacked against him, his experience with the Lord told him the Lord gives you victory despite the situation, right? David was all in whether he was going to become king or not. He was all in whether he was going to die or not. But it's not always that the Lord says, hey, you got to be all in and you got to do it right now. And I'm telling you to leave everything behind. But I think it's a commitment from the heart where he says, is your heart fully for me? Are you completely with me? And so I feel like that play with your heart, that's what we're saying is that is your heart fully for the Lord? Can you fully do it? And there may become a day. There may come a day where he says, it's time to lay down your life. Um, I remember as a, as a young kid, when I first started playing tennis, my tennis coach was super, super serious. And he said to me, Chrissy, you can pick tennis or you can pick every other sport, but you can't do both. I won't train you if you're going to pick any other sport but tennis. It was an all-in decision. It was either this or everything else. And I felt like, you know, that's kind of how it is with the Lord. You can have, G we, we need to go after Jesus or we can go after every other thing in the world. But you can't serve two masters, the Bible says, right? Um, let's see. Oh, I'm going to end kind of, there's two more things I want to say. But uh, I was going to talk about some times when I was, I was in training for, for tennis and, uh, I would be, you know, our weekend, let me see. I'm going to read it for you. I would think I was missing out on fun of the high school life. I didn't go to parties. I didn't do sleepovers. I didn't do the youth lockouts. I didn't sleep in on Saturday or lay around on the pool on the weekends. All of my time was given to tennis. But looking back, and at that point, I was a little bit sad. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm really, geez, I, I have nothing. I have no life. I, I always do tennis. But looking back, I go, gee, now I have that perspective of what did I really miss? What did I miss by not going to a high school party? A lot of us know, right? There's really not much that you're missing. What did you miss by not going to the sleepover? 
you really didn't miss a whole lot. So sometimes I feel like the world uses that, or the enemy uses that enticement that, like, oh, you, you're going to be missing something, right? And they try to get us to go after the, the prize that doesn't last, to go after the worldly things. But really the Lord says, I've called you to an internal prize, to a crown that never fades. Um, Jim Elliott, has anyone heard of Jim Elliott? Yeah, okay. I, I loved this story when I was young. And I got to sh- sh- share this little quick thing. And when I was in college, after my first year of um, tennis, so this is when my mind was still controlling me on the court because I hadn't learned that yet. I was like, well, shoot, maybe I should just go a missionary. And I had loved the story of Jim Elliott. So I actually went down to Ecuador and I went to Amaguanya, which was the city that they based out of to fly their supplies over to the... I always said Aka, but, but someone said that's not the right pronunciation of these Indians that he, they were going into. And we actually drove into um, to a little city called Dayuma. And Dayuma was the name of the translator that Jim Elliott had, and they had named that city after her. So I was, I was still like, Lord, maybe I'm just supposed to be a missionary. I'm, I'm going to the place that Jim Elliott went. I'm going to see what this man did. You know, I'm going to get in there. But I love this quote that he uses, and so many of you have probably heard it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Choosing to follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, that we won't make mistakes. When we choose to follow Jesus, we have to put a purpose. We have a purpose greater than ourselves. We'll have obstacles along the way. We'll have moments of glory and moments of great failure. But in the end, it's all going to be worth it. Um... I have this quote from Michael Jordan. Some of y'all are basketball fans. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted with the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. And I think that's really important to just to realize that just because we're called to follow Christ, just because we go all in, that we play with our heart, doesn't mean we're not going to fail. doesn't mean that we're not going to have obstacles along the way. I want to kind of finish this up. I'm going to read you the end of the story to the Michael Phelps thing. Uh, And this is a good one. So this is the Beijing Olympics. It says, back in Beijing, it was 9.56 a.m., four minutes before the races start, and Phelps stood behind the starting block, bouncing slightly on his toes. I think he did something like this, right? When the announcer said his name, Phelps stepped up onto the block as he always did before a race, and then he stepped back down as he always did. He swung his arms. He does this, right? We all know this, like, thing, the Michael Phelps swing your arms thing. Three times as he had done before every race since he was 12 years old. He stepped back up on the block again, got into his stance, and when the gun sounded, he leapt. Phelps knew that something was wrong as soon as he hit the water. There was moisture inside his goggles. He couldn't tell if they were leaking from the top or the bottom, but as he broke the water's surface and began swimming, he hoped the leak wouldn't become too bad. By the second turn, however, everything was getting blurry. As he approached the third turn and final lap, the cups of his goggles were completely filled. Phelps couldn't see anything. Not the line in the pool's bottom and not the T marking the approaching wall. He couldn't see how many strokes were left. For most swimmers, Losing your sight in the middle of an Olympic final would be cause for panic. But Phelps was calm. Everything else that day had gone according to plan. 
the leaking goggles were a minor deviation, but one for which he was prepared. Bowman had once made Phelps swim in a Michigan pool in the dark, believing that he needed to be ready for any surprise. Some of the videotapes in Phelps' mind had featured problems like this. He had mentally researched how he would respond to a goggle failure. As he started his lap, Phelps estimated how many strokes the final push would require, 19 or 20, maybe 21, and started counting. He felt totally relaxed as he swam at full strength. Midway through the lap, he began to increase his effort, a final eruption that had become one of his main techniques in overwhelming oppon opponents. At 18 strokes, he started anticipating the wall. He could hear the crowd roaring, but since he was blind, he had no idea if they were cheering for him or someone else. 19 strokes, then 20. It felt like he needed one more. That's what the videotape in his head said. He made a 21st huge stroke, glided with his arm outstretched and touched the wall. He had timed it perfectly. When he ripped off his goggles and looked up at the scoreboard, it said WR, world record, next to his name. He'd won another gold. After the race, a reporter asked what it felt like to swim blind. It felt like I imagined it would, Phelps said. It was one additional victory to a lifetime of small wins. I felt like that was just a real solid example that we, we do need to be prepared. We need to train our bodies. We need to prepare our mind. We need to play with our heart. We need to be all in. Um, so many of these things that we're willing to do for the hobbies that we have or the loves of our life, like golf or football or anything else that we take on as um, something that we really give ourselves to, we also need to put that just into our everyday life and into our, our walk of faith, right? I mean, we're willing to do it. We're willing to do these measures for sports, for things that won't last. Can we just challenge ourselves to do that in our walk with the Lord, to gain that momentum, to have those everyday small wins that can lead to Olympic world records? I think if we can do that, we can become a people that that achieves the things that the Lord sets in our hearts. I feel like he gives us great dreams, great aspirations, but so many times we think we're not capable. We may be putting our eye on the prize, like in tennis, if I'm focused on winning the French Open, I can't win the point that I need to right now. But I think if we can rehearse, if we can see that obstacles are going to come along our way, we're going to have failures, but that doesn't mean we won't get there. That we can rise as a church, we can rise up. Um, I wrote, we cannot think that the Christian life is committed, that the Christian life, this life committed to follow one who hung in death on a cross will pass without difficulty. We must be prepared for the trials of life and the traps of our enemy. Our bodies should be trained to submit to the direction of our mind, not our minds following our desires of our body, and not, not our mind being taken off this way and that way just because of an emotional sense. Our thoughts have to be fixed on the things of heaven and not the distractions of this world. And our hearts must be fully sold out to him who gave everything. We are runners in a race. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If this is, if we're willing to, to push like we do for sports and athletics, if we're willing to do that for a prize that won't last, would it be reasonable to suggest we do it for a crown that does not fade away?
Um, I'm going to kind of end it on a funny note. I feel like it's really serious, but I do want to add this one thing. I was thinking for myself personally, I'm creeping up there in age. You know, I'm I'm not a stellar athlete anymore. Um, And I thought, oh, you know, I I just got to start getting back in shape, you know. I, I need to start giving it that 10 minutes a day. And I was thinking to myself, you know, 10 minutes a day, that, that might keep me where I am. 10 minutes a day is not going to improve my current status, right? And I feel like sometimes we look at the Lord that way. Like, I really need to get up there. I need to get up and give God that 10 minutes a day. I really need to get in that word for 10 minutes today. And that is a good thing. That is going to keep you where you are. You are not going to get the saggy butt syndrome, as I call it. <laughs> but um, but we, we do, we... I think we can think about it as an athlete. We need to commit to probably more than that if we really want to go forward. If we really want to move forward and go after the Lord, um, we got to train. We got to train our bodies. We got to prepare our minds. We got to get in those places that we're fighting the thoughts that come into our heads. And we got to be all in with our heart. So that's all I have. I want to pray for us real quick. And then um, I think we'll just throw some music on. And if you guys want prayer or anything like that, you can come up. I'm doing really well. If you all have youth, I do work with the youth. If you guys have youth, they try to let them out at 8.30, but they do lots of worship in there. So I know as parents, we get a little antsy for them to open up those doors, but I'll just tell you that they'll probably be be going until 8.30. So hang out for a few minutes if you want to pick up your youther. So Lord, thank you for tonight. We thank you that you came, that um, that you can just use me to share some of my own experiences and what you're teaching me. We thank you for this body, Lord, that works together as a team, that we can see that we're not just doing things on our own, but we're pushing forward towards you to a greater crown, to something that will last forever, Lord. I ask that these words, whatever was from you, Lord, would just stick, would find a place to really nestle down and grow, and whatever wasn't from you would just die. They would go away. I pray your blessing over these people, that they would be great athletes for you, that they would be runners in the race of life that would be um, set, have their eyes set on the crown that you have set, set forth for them. Lord, just give us visions of what you want to do so that we can have something to go after. Lord, we, we know that in life there's trophies, but Lord, we just want to see what your trophies are and that, that would really spurn us on. So thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. <laughs>